Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to Puto Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by... Investigative reporter Brian Chasnoff. Columnist editorial board member Kerry Clatt. We're recording this on uh, January 10th, 2022, and uh, this is a big week for uh, City Council and uh, particularly for CPS Energy, which uh, has requested a 3.85% uh, rate hike, which uh, would affect the average customer by about uh, added an additional five dollars or so per month to the average customer's bill uh, and would uh, generate an estimated 73 million dollars a year for CPS energy um, the vote is scheduled to happen this Thursday and uh, it's we're really f- lucky that we have uh, Diego Mendoza Moyers who's been covering CPS energy and and it's done some some great work looking at what CPS energy is dealing with and, and energy issues in general. Uh, in the city of San Antonio. Diego, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for being here, for having me. I guess I want to start off by talking a little bit about um, just the circumstances, particularly over the last year, that have um, you know sort of pushed CPS energy leaders to uh, to come to city council uh, with this this request. What are what are some of the financial pressures that they've been feeling? What are, and the causes of those pressures? Yeah, so of course everyone knows about the pandemic and the winter storm, which are kind of the two big um, items. But but even uh, you know beyond those two things, you know what CPS has really cited as the need for the rate increase is the uh, a dwindling workforce, which uh, you know CPS has seen a lot of people retire, a lot of uh, you know engineering types actually get better offers at other companies during the pandemic. So uh, CPS has, has seen a lot of its employees leave. So they're uh, part of the rate increases to raise uh, raise wages for employees. Um, you know another part of it is is uh, you know with CPS. Uh, they have to, you know, build new substations and new infrastructure to handle CPS or San Antonio's growing population. Um, if you think, you know, the last time CPS uh, sought a rate increase or implemented one was in 2014. So uh, you can consider the, you know, growth of San Antonio just in that time. It's pretty significant. Um, so, you know, just building new infrastructure, uh, uh, raising wages for employees. And then another big aspect of it is upgrading CPS's, uh, their enterprise uh, software system, which is a, a uh, very complex system that CPS has said it's going to cost like $300 million to replace. Um, and so they're, they're kind of getting the ball rolling on that with the rate increase, I think putting about $15 million towards that. So those are really the big items that CPS says uh, are, are, you know, what they're going to put these additional funds towards, which is, you know, workforce, uh, additional infrastructure and, and new software really. 
you know, one of the things that, that uh, we heard a few months ago was that, you know, CPS Energy was, was looking to request uh, a rate hike of, of 10% or maybe more. Uh, and, and obviously they, they recalibrated and, and, and brought down that request. Was, was it just politics that they looked and thought there is just not going to be the, they're just not going to get the support on city council at this time it, during the pandemic, given everything that everyone's going through to, uh, to, to, uh, raise rates that much. Well, you look back at that and it's kind of a head scratching decision. And I think CPS officials were still there, uh, you know, acknowledge that it might've been a mistake to come out with that, uh, preliminary, you know, 10% figure. And I think what CPS was trying to do was say, Hey, um, you know, we're going to plan for some, uh, you know, large investments in the future related to generation, you know, perhaps closing this Bruce Cole plan or, um, you know, addressing other issues. Of course, uh, I think customers, uh, since CPS suspended disconnections at the beginning of the pandemic, um, which they resumed in the fall, but it, during that time, customers built up about $140 million of, of past due bills. So I think that initial 10% rate increase was really um, looking at addressing these really large issues associated with, with that bad debt, um, with the generation um, decisions. And so I, I think that's why it was so large was that CPS was baking in these big expenses into their budget that are, are several years out, right? And then I think what happened was, you know, Mayor Nuremberg and, and city staff knew how, um, you know, untenable a 10% request would be. I mean, if, you know, the, the public's really upset over a 4% increase. So I think a 10% increase would have been, you know, not acceptable. So I think, um, you know, CPS staff and, and city staff got together and said, hey, how do we address just the short term problems that CPS is facing, such as the workforce and the really pressing needs? And then we'll kind of um, discuss those other longer term issues, such as the bad debt, the generation decisions down the line. And I'll just note that CPS, they're, they're basically baking into their budget two more rate increases, I believe, in 2025 and 2027. Mm -hmm. So um, they're handling the short term needs, but clearly they're referencing that, hey, you know, down the line, we're going to have to raise rates more. Uh, they just cut it down for, for the time being. You know what I mean? One of the uh, we've we've heard that there at, at this point, there might be. Uh a, a majority of six council members who are at least seem to be leaning toward um, toward voting for the the rate increase. Um, I think the, the 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 council members who have been maybe the the most uh, openly uh, critical or, or skeptical about it have been Jalen McKee Rodriguez on the on the east side and uh, Terry Castillo on the west side. Uh, we've also heard uh, Clayton Perry, although I think he has said he's he's still not sure how he's going to vote. He's been, he's been pretty critical of, of the idea. Uh, what's your sense about how things are, are, are shaking out there? And is there anything that could happen either for or, or against CPS energy in the final days that could, could sway council votes? You know, I'd be really shocked if if city council shoots this rate increase down. And and I was actually talking with uh, Councilman Polias. Uh, we were walking down the street a, a couple of days ago and mm -hmm. um, you know, he made the key point, which is that, we can sort of bring up all of these errors that CPS might have made or, or um, you know, they've had a lot of management turnover. There's a lot of really ugly things that have happened at CPS. But the reality is, if CPS does not raise its rates, the bond rating agencies are going to downgrade CPS's credit. And so, you know, which is obviously very, you know, technical financial stuff. But what that really means is that CPS will probably have to pay millions more in, in extra interest expenses every year, which just go to, you know, bond holding investors on Wall Street or wherever, uh, you know, clearly not in the city of San Antonio. So Polias, I think, raises the key issue that we can have all these political discussions and we can talk about, you know, reforming CPS or, or having an audit of the management. But the reality is, if they don't get this short term rate increase, their finances are just going to get worse and the service levels are going to decline. And I think they just see 
um, that it's, it's going to be a cascading issue. So you can kind of have a statement vote against it if you want, which it, it seems like, you know, maybe Jalen McKee Rodriguez or another uh, council member or two might, might do that. Um, yeah. But I would be really surprised if, if council members don't approve it. Yeah. And, and I think one of the issues too, that for CPS energy that, you know, that's the unique situation that, that San Antonio is in because it is a city owned utility that the city is really dependent on CPS energy for, for revenue also. So their success is kind of, I mean, it's kind of tied to the city and vice versa. And uh, I think that's one of the things that, that, you know, at least some council members are really giving a lot of thought to. I, I wanted to, uh, to ask you also about, you know, as part of this, uh, you know, the financial distress that, that CPS Energy is under, related to last February's freeze, you had, you know, they had huge bills that they had to pay suppliers, which they paid some of them, and they've legally challenged others. Um, I think the argument has, has been that there was price gouging going on from some of these suppliers. Um, when you look at that legal case, I mean, what are their, how, how good is their, is their legal case? And, and do you think that there's much chance that they could, that they can have some success? Yeah, so I was actually looking at this last week and uh, a story to come, but um, it, it looks like they actually several, settled several additional lawsuits in December, um, mm-hmm. still working out. You know, they we don't know how much they potentially settled for versus how much they were contesting. So the, the final dollar figure is still up for, for you know, uh, still being contested, basically. But it seems like CPS Energy is, is settling several of these lawsuits and continuing a couple in court, I know um, they've got their biggest cases against energy transfer, uh, two subsidiaries. Uh, they're contesting around $250 million there. Um, and so it seems like CPS, uh, that's kind of where they're putting their eggs in that basket of winning that suit, particularly against energy transfer. It seems like they're um, maybe, like I said, settling some of the other arguments that aren't quite as strong. Um, so I would expect CPS so far has paid a little over $400 million, uh, for natural gas bills related to the winter storm. Uh, the number they've said they're contesting is about $580 million. I would expect that to go down. Um, and so right now, ratepayers are going to have to pay about $1.26 on their monthly bills extra because of that $400 million that CPS has paid for natural gas. Mm-hmm. So I would expect that figure to go up um, to maybe closer to $3 once all these uh, you know, lawsuits are settled or, or lost or you know, resolved, I guess. When would a decision be made about uh, what, who to name CEO? Will Will Garza have the interim uh, removed from his name? Will it be him? And uh, if not, have you heard any any names suggested? Yeah, so we, we really haven't gotten a, a major update the last couple of months. We know that the, you know, Janie Garza or Janie Gonzalez, excuse me, the trustee is, is leading the uh, CEO search. And so Rudy, you know, Rudy Garza, the interim CEO, everything he said so far is that, you know, the board has put me in this temporary role. I'm just here to stabilize the ship. And, you know, Rudy, at least uh, publicly, has not given any indication he expects to stay long term. Of course, you know, part of me says that, hey, an incumbent that's been with the utility for a long time must be considered, I would imagine. Um, but, I, you know, I, I would expect it's going to be a few months before we learn much more about the CEO search. And just one thing I want to make note of, you know, one of the first things, if you ask anyone off the street their thought on the CPS rate increase, probably one of the first things they're going to say is, is complain about how much the CEO made. Of course, Paula Gold Williams uh, made, you know, between 800 grand to a million dollars a year, depending on different incentives and things like that. Um, and so, you know, one point I want to make is CPS is likely going to have to pay up for a, a you know, quote unquote change agent or a, a really, um, you know, visionary CEO. If the utility wants to, you know, get a, a dynamic leader, they're really going to really have to pay up. And so this kind of line that um, the CEO makes too much money, I think, could really uh, make the search difficult. Right. If, if executives see that uh, the public is going to complain about their salary all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So San Antonio. <laughs> 
Diego, you wrote recently about uh, the, the the spruce coal-fired plant, and this has been a uh, you know big issue for a long time with, with the local environmental community and uh, the the desire to see um, the the plant shut down. Um, and it's something that that uh, Reed Williams, who's the chair of the Rate Advisory uh, Commission or Committee, uh, recently talked about addressed the council and discussed what he thought would would. Uh, would be a good plan going forward with the, the spruce plant. What what do you see as the the, the future uh, of the spruce plant, and and uh, you know what are the what are the arguments that are being made pro and pro and and um, con when it comes to uh, keeping them going or keeping those two units going. I thought that Reed Williams made a really interesting, um, I guess he kind of laid out an interesting plan to city council and Reed's, of course, a former uh, oil and gas executive himself. So I thought, you know, the argument was particularly interesting coming from him. Um, And so what he proposed was uh, in the next three years, um, you know, closing the spruce one unit, which is older and converting the spruce two unit to run on natural gas. Um, I, you know, CPS basically immediately told me that the three year timeline was, was uh, probably too optimistic that it takes around four years to convert a coal plant to run on natural gas. But I would expect that to be the path that CPS takes, uh, you know, emphasizing greater reliance on natural gas, which uh, emits about half the emissions when it's burned as coal. Um, so, so that seems to be the likely path forward. CPS is going to have to um, go through their this flex power bundle plan where they're going to add a, a significant amount of solar generation. Um, you know, and one thing I want to note, too, I, I think CPS, a challenge they're having right now is they, they want to go to natural gas. But you've seen a lot of volatility in natural gas prices the last year, particularly mm-hmm. after the winter storm. Of course, we saw prices just shoot up and we've seen a lot of issues with, um, you know, like the gas supply was drawn down quite a bit during the cold snap just a few days ago, which wasn't that intense. So basically we've seen a lot of instability in the supply of natural gas, a lot of uh, instability in the price. So I think a a consideration CPS is making right now is, is, you know, we want to have, you know, quote unquote firm generation to back up our renewables. We don't want that to be coal, but we're seeing these issues with gas. So, you know, I think natural gas is going to be the way they go forward as it relates to generation and, and closing the spruce coal plant. Uh, but I think that we're seeing some of the challenges associated with that, uh, with kind of the volatility of price and supply of gas. Well, Diego, thank you so much for joining the podcast. We really appreciate it and uh, kind of helping us make make sense of uh, what's going on with CPS Energy. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Last Thursday was the one year anniversary of the uh, insurrectionist attack on the Capitol by supporters of Donald Trump, who refused to accept uh Trump's defeat in the 2020 presidential election and believed the big lie that the election had been stolen from him. We had a really excellent package in the Express News last week from the editorial board. I would encourage any everybody who hasn't read it to to read it. Um, and uh, Kerry uh, had had uh, a great piece on 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 what this means. But I wanted to talk a little bit about um, some of the. The blowback faced by our, our junior U.S. senator from Texas last week, uh, Ted Cruz, he's had a kind of a strange, uh, followed a strange path when it comes to the 2020 election. He uh, it, it was volunteering his legal services uh, to, to go to the, argue before the Supreme Court, uh, a ridiculous lawsuit that Attorney General Ken Paxton had put forward challenging uh, the 2020 election. He suggested uh, on the floor of the Senate uh, last January that uh, Congress not certify the election and that uh, some kind of commission be set up. He, he, he uh, evoked the, the president of 
precedent of 1876, when we, which is, I don't think anybody would want to look at that election as like a, an example to follow. You had, uh, you, you had uh, three states that, that had not certified their, their votes. And there was basically a, a compromise set up in which, uh, uh, you know, Southern Democrats allowed the Republican Rutherford, Rutherford B. Hayes to win the election uh, in exchange for basically calling off Reconstruction. And so it was a, a strange example to to be uh, citing, but that's what he did. Uh, at the same time, we have seen over the past year that he has uh, often referred to the insurrectionists as terrorists. And uh, I think that he he's torn between wanting to uh, pander to the Republican base and also wanting to uh, show evidence of some statesmanship that could be of value to him if he was in a general election for the presidency. And last week, as he has done several times over the past year, he referred to the uh, the rioters at the Capitol who attacked police officers as terrorists. Well, this really upset uh, Tucker Carlson, uh, who's arguably the most powerful person on Fox News. And he brought Ted Cruz on and said that Ted Cruz had lied about it and would not accept. Ted, Ted Cruz said it was, i sorry, it was sloppy language. I didn't, I shouldn't have used that term. And Tucker Carlson did not accept it and kept saying that he was lying. And, and um, it was, uh, it was uh, one of the more humiliating uh, <laughs> TV appearances we've seen from a, a U.S. politician in quite a while. Brian, I know you've observed uh Senator Cruz at close range. When you, what do you what do you make of of him and just sort of the the what we saw that sort of desperation to to win over Tucker Carlson last week? Yeah, he's always he's always been an odd duck to me. I mean, he he initially ran for the Senate as an insurgent, uh, you know, someone who was going to uh, you know shake up the establishment and so forth. But time and again, he he seems to uh, you know bend over backwards to, to appease the, the GOP establishment. And it seems in this case, I mean, there are a certain GOP talking points on January 6th, uh, the attack on the Capitol that he, uh, is hewing very closely to, uh, I mean, for one thing, you know, it's, it's verboten to say that it was actually an insurrection, um, right. which, um, you know, arguably it, it, it was, um, you know, the, I think what, what Cruz is, feels pressure to say is that Democrats are politicizing January 6th, um, that, uh, only a small number of people, uh, at that riot or insurrection or whatever you want to call it were violent. Um, when of course the entire event was extremely violent. So it, the, the point is, it's, it, Ted has to walk this he's trying to walk this fine line and, and thread this needle, uh, which is, it's gotta be tough not only for him, but for everyone in the Republican party, who's dancing this dance where they denounce, uh, the attack and they, they denounce attacks on police officers, but they don't acknowledge, exactly. yeah. uh, certain truths, uh, behind it. Uh, the, for one thing, they don't acknowledge the, the lies that former president Trump, pedal that inspired the entire insurrection. So, I mean, I don't, I don't envy Ted Cruz for having to, you know, uh, I, it's just, I mean, I'd be curious to go over what your thoughts are in terms of his political ambitions and would it, would it benefit him at this point to, to get out in front 
of the situation and, and just say some basic truths about that day that should be abundantly clear to anyone who lived through it, which is, you know, all of us. I think that, that he, uh, and I think this is probably common for, for people running for, for president these days, is just that he's thinking in terms of the Republican primary. What, what he faced from Tucker Carlson last week is probably what he would face in a Republican primary, which is that, you know, you're in some ways taking the, the Democratic line. One of the things, too, that's interesting is that on the day of the January 6th riot, you heard some pretty strong language from Republicans denouncing it. I mean, they were, these were people who were forced from the, you know, forced to hide in their offices for hours. You, some of them were really scared for their lives. Um, and this, I think they were shaken up by the whole thing. And I think that their immediate assumption was that this was going to be something that on a bipartisan level, the American people were going to be against what they had seen. The American people would be had, were shocked by what they had seen, and it was it was not it was not going to be a, a, a real partisan issue. And so they came out that way. And I think over time, and it didn't take long before we started seeing members of the Republican Party and and people in the in in Trump's base starting to tell us what we had seen with our own eyes hadn't really happened. And that these people who were just patriotic Americans and they were going for a, on a tour of the Capitol and uh, if anything and or Antifa had had infiltrated the, the mob and or really it was the police officers who were the who were belligerent and the uh, the the rioters were um, they were the victims. So all this rewriting happened and Tucker Carlson has been at the forefront of that. So they've had to re, to recalibrate because they. You know, they 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 had they 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 thought that the American people were going to respond, and I think the American people, by and large, did. They were horrified, but the Republican base has not seen it that way. I mean, Kerry, what what did you make of of what the Ted Cruz's uh, groveling last week? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the two key words used is humiliating and groveling, and I mean, let's look let, let's look at Ted Cruz's year. And it, it begins you know, January 6th. He's standing up, defending, you know, the uh, efforts to stop certification of, of the votes. Right. We go into February and, of course, Cancun, which that in itself would be should be should be enough. Then he, <laughs> he has this habit. Uh, we, I mean, we don't know what he does except stay on Twitter and troll. Mm-hmm. And he has this habit of getting into Twitter fights with celebrities and comedians in which he always comes out. Looking bad, always. Uh, Bitbird owned him towards the end of the year. Then we get to the end of the year, and he mis mistakes a tweet. He thinks it's the state of Washington putting some kind of restrictions on dancing for New Year's Eve when it's That's actually right. Western Australia. <laughs> I, I, I mean, and of course, all of this the runoff to, to which we all know is again is, is the way he 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 kisses the shoes of a man who dogged his wife and said that his dad killed JFK. I don't see how, I don't care what your politics are, uh, what party you belong to. You can't respect someone like that. That's the key word. Who, who you can't respect him. And, and I I mean, ideology aside, how do you run in a, in a Republican primary as such a sniveling, groveling coward, yeah, I, th- I think that that's that's really the, the, the key point, because, 
you know, as, as Brian was pointing out, you know, those first couple of years with Ted Cruz in the Senate, I mean, he would, he was very combative uh, and it would go after you know, Republicans uh, in, in the Senate. And his, he had, he wanted to build the 2016 convention. The two, exactly. The 2016, I'm sorry, but, but, the, but I mean, that moment that, that Brian was talking about, that was it when he refused. I mean, that was, and I, that was gutsy. That was, that was yeah. heroic. That was courageous when he refused to endorse Trump at the, at, at the convention and got booed off the stage. That's if right. he had continued on that path, man, yeah, because that was that was if he continued on that path. He probably wouldn't be a senator anymore. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> yeah. And he that's knows that. And that's and that's just the that's just the way that the, the base works with the GOP. Yeah. You know? And, and yeah. the, the, the part of that story, too, is that the very next morning when you had Texas Republicans at the convention, when they had their 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 breakfast, you had Texas Republicans, including some from Bear County, getting in Ted Cruz's face and telling him they were angry. About it. I mean, some of the booze he got were from Texas. I mean, at the time when, as I was watching it in real time, I thought, oh, it's, it's you know, it's he, he, the New York delegation is mad at him. There were a lot of there were people in Texas who were booing him, and so they were they were giving him a piece of their mind. And I think that's where the, the groveling really began. He was just saying, oh my you god, know, I'm, I'm losing support of Texas Republicans. And and really, this is just this just reflects a complete inability in the Republican Party and maybe maybe poli- politics in general to apologize and recognize that something went terribly wrong and it's time to move in a different direction as a country. Like it's just inconceivable for Ted Cruz and others in the Republican party right now to, to do that. And it's, it's going to end up hurting America very much. Yeah. It's going to kill us. And, and, and you know, the thing about it is going to kill us. Yeah, that's right. You know, the the if you look back at our history, I mean, every Republican president, and this has worked too uh, as well in the Democratic Party. But I mean, even someone as as uh, as popular as Ronald Reagan, he got criticized sometimes by members of his own party. I mean, uh, when he signed the nuclear deal with the, with the Soviet Union, there were a lot of critics in his party. Mm-hmm. Certainly, George H. W. Bush got criticized by members of his party when he was president. George W. Bush, uh, increasingly over the course of his presidency on, on Iraq, got criticized within his, his party. So it, it's not, you know, we, we have a history within the Republican Party of, you know, elected officials criticizing their own their own leader. But tr- we're, we've really seen a change with Trump because once he got elected president, um, You've really seen just tremendous fear from Republicans, and the sense that if I say anything about this person, then I'm, I'm basically Liz Cheney. I'm I am exiled. I am an outcast in my own party. Yeah. And Trump, I mean, uh, Ted Cruz yeah. is very afraid of that. And, th- and there's just something about you know with with Trump and this whole mentality of you know being a bully, but then acting like you're the victim. And I know that's an obvious <laughs> point that's been going on for years now, but you know, they, they, there's they, they can't acknowledge that that it's you know that that mentality. You know, they cannot acknowledge that this is that the bullying behavior has edged into very dangerous territory. And yep. January sixth last year was their opportunity to finally be emancipated from from Trump. That's it. And you had those few hours, as you said, Gilbert, you know, a few hours where they, they, they you know, they were, everyone was shocked in real time. 
but then they 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 tied themselves tighter to closer to him. That's that's the disturbing part. And it's it's one thing if you have that segment of folks who actually believe that. I mean, Trump is who he is. But you have people like the enablers, like 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 Cruz, who knows better, yeah. like Abbott, who knows better. But they're willing to to sell their soul to, of all people, Donald Trump, not to a Reagan, not to a Bush, mm-hmm. but to Donald Trump. This is who you this is who you're going to put all of us, this nation on that hill to die for Donald Trump. <laughs> and if anyone has any doubts about Tetris's ambitions, he gave an interview uh, last month where he was asked if he would consider running for president again. He said in a heartbeat, he said running in 2016 was the best experience of his life. And he made the case that as the second place finisher in the 2016 Republican primary, he would be in a great position. Uh, he would have built in support and fundraising ability. So he certainly sees himself in that, in that way. But I think getting to Kerry's point, regardless of how he finished in 2016, I mean, I think that's kind of ancient history now. And it was a pretty distant second place to Donald Trump. But I think regardless of that, even people who agree with him, even people who, you know, are, are completely in line with Donald Trump, they've got to look at Ted Cruz and think, how do I respect this person who has... Who I mean, let's not forget he fled to Cancun in the middle of the freeze. <laughs> and blamed that's his daughters for enough. it. Yeah. Blamed that's his daughters for it. That's the thing. That, the way didn't, he was, leave, didn't he leave his dog at home? his dog, Snowflake. <laughs> I wasn't like Snowflake, the name of the dog. <laughs> I mean, how does how does anyone recover from that, let, let alone a, a violent insurrection on, on the U.S. Capitol? I, I just, you, you, know. you know, I don't, you, you don't, and I think, I think he knows that because you see him like, you know, maybe the next month he was at one of those CPAC conventions and where he gave that, where he shouted freedom. Mm-hmm. Like, Cruz is always somebody in search of this great line or this heroic moment. So I call him Ted the Heroic. And mm-hmm. you kind of see him flailing. I mean, I think that's why he is on Twitter so often, because he's trying to, he, he's, he is a smart man. And he's aware of how it looks, what he's done. And he's trying to find that moment or that event which will take our minds away from that. But again, just just Cancun alone and and Trump dogging his wife and 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 father would be enough. But then you just add it on, and he's just like he's like this this self humiliating machine, <laughs> this tick that he has. When he came in, he was basically it's called it's called shamelessness. That's, what it is. That's, that's the perfect word, actually. Shamelessness. Yeah. When he when he when he you know got elected to the Senate. He was perfectly in tune with the Tea Party movement. I mean, he he really was, and and he rode that to mm-hmm. some you know political success for a while. And I think now, as you said, Kerry, he's think he's kind of flailing. I think he's kind of trying to kind of get back in sync with the Republican base uh, in the way that he was, you know, eight or nine years ago. And I just well, don't I think, think he knows how I to do it. I think you nailed it. I think you nailed it there, Gilbert. I mean, you know, back then it was fashionable in the Republican with the Republican base to rail against uh, the establishment. And now it's fashionable to, you know, to have unlimited fealty to uh, hmm. president, former president Trump. And so he's just fought, he's just going where the wind blows. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that note, we will I think we'll wrap things up. Uh, hope everyone's doing well. Thank you for listening. And we'll be back next week. Take care.